One of the most interesting events of my life. Very interesting, but thoroughly supercilious. Happened while I was the associate pastor at Covenant Church. Uh, we had about 12,000 members at the time. We had a men's retreat. In that men's retreat, there was a, a man who was who was ministering on the on the wounds of the father. Uh, he had written a book, and I don't even remember his name. I don't remember uh, a lot of the content of the book. Um, uh, to be quite frank with you, I, I wasn't overly impressed uh, by his speaking ability or or even his anointing, if you will. Uh, but he did do something that rocked my world. He asked that group of about 300 men it, to raise their hands if their father was present for the birth of their first child. Now I asked how many of you are fathers and, and a majority of the men raised their hand. And then he asked how many of you, your father was present for the birth of your first child. Only about a half a dozen men raised their hands out of 300. And then he asked, at any given moment of time, did your father pull you aside and, and bless you spiritually? And about a half a dozen men raised their hand. But, but what was interesting is, Myself and one other 30-something at the time, we were in our 30s, young man, raised our hands positively to both questions. So two out of 300 had experienced their father entering their lives at these crucial intersections of a man's life, the birth of his first child, and the need for the, the, the verbal affirmation of the blessing was only extended to two out of 300. And then I, I, I reflected upon the fact that, that our ministry in Uganda uh, began 30 years ago. And it began, of course, my mom was leading the ministry and my mother has a mother's heart. That, that was her perspective of the world. She has a mother's heart uh, and she loved those kids. If, if you ever ask uh, whether or not my mom loved them, they knew they were loved. They knew that they were cared for and she cared about them. Uh, but And part of that care was when she was challenged 30 years ago to help a group of orphans, 14, 17 orphans, I keep getting numbers mixed up, but hey, you know, I'm a preacher. I get to have a little variance there. So give me some grace in the numbers and we'll be okay. Uh, so I normally say 17. So these 17 kids are eating bark off a tree. They're stealing from the neighbors. They're in the middle of what is known as the killing fields in Uganda. When they went to lay the foundation for the school building, that was eventually built in that area to, to help these children. The skulls of some of their parents were found 
in the ground. The most deaths that happened during this Civil War happened in this area. Many of the parents were just wiped from the face of the earth. And this was a, a, an international tragedy of epic proportions that really is very rarely mentioned. I mean, we, we talk about the genocide in, in Uganda, I mean, in Rwanda, uh, and that was very tragic and cannot be understated how evil that season in Rwanda was and how they were manipulated by government and press. Uh, and it was, it was really demonic if you will. Well, the same thing happened in Uganda. And this, this war that took place left these orphan children. And these orphan children were, were accepted by my mom. She accepted the challenge to create a ministry to help them. She'd only been in India up until that point. And she accepted that challenge. Challenge accepted. We started working with these kids. We started getting sponsors for the kids started incorporating people to minister to those kids and those kids grew up and many of those kids entered the ministry of God loves kids uh, and ministering to the the new crop of children that would come into the school as orphans are are extremely destitute needy children and when they would come in they'd be ministered to by the first group of orphans and now we're on the, the, the third or fourth group of, of kids going through the ministry. You know, it only takes about eight years, nine years for a kid to go from, from elementary school or kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. Uh, it doesn't take that long. And so you have season after season after season of children coming through the ministry. And some of them we've been able to go to college or to trade schools or things like that. But many of them just uh, exit the program and don't stay in a relationship with us. But we've had a large group just recently because of the efforts of Bess, my wife, uh, go through college and, and we've been maintaining relationship with them. And, and Facebook, WhatsApp, the, the internet. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. Has been a wonderful resource for us to actually build relationship with people halfway around the world and maintain that relationship and mentor people. And so I can't tell you how many times Bess and I, in fact, I woke up at three o'clock in the morning this morning, looked over and my wife is on the phone uh, working with people in Uganda and ministering to them and speaking into their lives. And that happens almost every night. It's one or the other of us who are touching the lives of people halfway around the world in the middle of the night. When you're sleeping, we're ministering. A scientist in Peru captured this, escaping from the tiny body of a sleeping hummingbird. And so it's, it's a very real thing to us that we're imparting into these people's lives. And I, it dawned on me that, that our young people really didn't know what it was like to be fathered. They'd never really had a father figure in their life. And in fact, those who were supposed to be a father figure in their life, the people that we had doing ministry 
in their lives at the school were actually fatherless sons as well. Your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. And so we had, we had generations of fatherless sons trying to help other fatherless sons and it created an atmosphere of, of dysfunction, if you will. If you combine the culture of Uganda, uh, which tends to negate the value of the children, uh, ships them off to school, um, does anything they can, they'll pop them out like crazy, keep having them, and then they want to abandon their responsibility to actually train them up in the way they should go. Uh, that's cultural. Now whose tea time is it? Now, uh, Vincent, Tessa, Valerie, Janine, Martha, Andrew, Thomas, Walter, Pat, Linda, Michael, Evadne, Alice, Dominic, and Sasha, it's your bedtime. Aww. Now, don't argue. Laura, Alfred, Nigel, Annie, Simon, and Wait. I've got something to tell the whole family. Oh, quick, go and get the others in, Gordon. And it's not right, and, it, and biblically it's not right. The Bible exalts our ministry to children over and over again. Deuteronomy chapter 6, Psalm 78, verses 1 through, through 11. All, all of that places us in a role of ministering to our children and generational Christianity. See, the devil wants to keep us from passing our faith to the next generation because when we pass our faith to the next generation, we are multiplying the kingdom of God, not adding to it. When we go and do evangelism, we're, we're operating in addition. But when we disciple people and when we practice generational Christianity, we enter into multiplication of the gospel and the kingdom of God on the earth. And so I, I'm really concerned. Now, I've been teaching for weeks on the perfect father and the father's relationship to us. But we have... Uh, a responsibility to fully receive our sonship from God. You see, if I take my son out into the yard and we're playing uh, softball or baseball, and, uh, and of course you can't play a full game of baseball with just two people, but what you can do is you can play catch. And so I get him a new mitt and we oil it down and we put the ball in there and put a rubber band around it and you know maybe he puts it under his pillow and sleeps on it for a night and gets that mitt all broken in. Oh, dad, will you play catch with me? Will you play catch with me? Okay, son, we're gonna go out in the yard and play catch. And if I throw the ball to my son, but he refuses to learn to catch it. And not only that, he won't go get it when he misses it. He won't pick up the ball and return it to me. It takes a little bit of effort on his part to be a son. It, and, and if he doesn't understand his role in the game, if he doesn't understand his place in the process, then the father becomes frustrated. The game can't really continue. The, the, the time together is not fruitful. And what I see in the body of Christ is I see a lot of people offering, operating with an orphan spirit, and that orphan spirit leads them to a lack of, of joy, a lack of fulfillment in their heart, 
uh, a lack of the ability to receive everything that God has for them. And then out of that lack of ability, lack of reception, everything God has for them springs the roots of sin. This whole idea of God is just holding us all back. Olsen said this as the membrane across his larynx vibrated to modulate the flow of air from his lungs, making his speech audible to the people listening. What's he done for you? What's he done for me? Nothing. As the people listened, their intricate air structures were instantly being transformed by the invisible sound waves into abstract thought in their brain's nervous tissue. And and then the legalists step in and they want to control and change and, and mold that person into their image. Uh, they want to cut them into their image. They want to make them look like them, make them talk like them, make them walk like them, uh, and then they can be born again. They can be accepted into the body of Christ. If you look at uh, a group like the Amish, and I can have tremendous respect for the culture that the Amish have created and some of the healthy parts of the Amish, but the problem is that they have equated their culture, their lifestyle with faith. Maybe they're gonna bring us a messenger. Ooh. Oh, hi. Took some doing, but I finally got them off. Where do you keep the new shoes? And, and nothing could be further from the truth. So if I want to be ministered to in the Amish community, I have to look like I'm Amish. I have to walk like I'm Amish. I have to talk like I'm Amish. I have to ride in a horse and buggy. You know, maybe it's a Mennonite, you know, and you... You got black bumper Mennonites. It's a, it's a sin to have chrome on your car, so you got to black out the chrome. See, the, the Mennonites are okay with cars, but some of them have chrome on their cars and some don't have chrome. When I spoke in a Mennonite church, I took off my tie, I took off my wedding ring. I spoke to about 2,000 people who had no clue how to control their children. I was shocked. These kids were wild. It was like speaking to a congregation full of popcorn. The kids were up and down and moving all over the place. And, and I'm doing my best to, to, to minister to them. And they were thrilled with the ministry when it was all said and done. But in order to attend that church, you have to conform to the cultural rules of the church. In order to be Amish, you have to conform to the cultural rules of the Amish. I, I tell you, if you're gonna be a United Pentecostal, you gotta to conform to the cultural norms of that church. And they will tell you that you are sinning if you don't. And then matter of fact, they may tell you that you're not getting to heaven if you don't conform to those cultural norms or what we might call legalism or the law. And thanks to the United Pentecostal Church, Everybody operating outside of the flow of the living God, outside of the joy of the Lord is their strength, outside of, of abiding in the vine and allowing God's spirit to flow through them, outside of recognizing that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you and that spirit is perfectly capable of changing you and moving you in the right direction. And yes, the Ten Commandments are, are the law, but they're also... Uh, a image of morality and also an image of the nature of God himself. And so in saying that I don't have to obey the law or I, the law is dead, the law is dead as a way into salvation. 
The law was never given to bring life. It was designed to be a mirror in our soul that we would stand in front of it and it would show us the putrid darkness that we are, the death that we represent. God didn't save you from drowning. You were dead in the middle of the lake, floating on the bottom. You were fish food, honey. You were putrid, you were corrupt, and he resurrected you from the dead. He brought life where there was no life. He set you free where there was no freedom. And the same, and, and the, the amount of faith it took for you to receive your sonship from him was given to you by him. Because from the foundation of the earth, before time existed, it was in the Father's heart to have sons. And you were created to be a son of the living God and, and not under the bondage of law. So if we look at, at and, and one of the ways I know that this is a real issue, well, first of all, uh, I can look at other pastors and I can look at other ministries and I can say, look, if nobody has ever told you that you take grace too far, you're not preaching on grace enough and you haven't preached it correctly. Because if you preach on grace enough to bring transformation into people's thinking, because God's ways are not our ways, this is like teaching people how to be Martians. Gordon, Matu, Verada, Nikto, Latu, Verada, Nikto. It is so alien to our human experience to live and dwell and have our being in Christ Jesus, to be submerged in the atmosphere of his love and grace and mercy and dwell as a new creature in Christ Jesus. It is so foreign to us. And we keep having this gravitational pull back toward performance, back toward uh, uh, having to do the cultural norms in order to be accepted by the body, which means if we're not accepted by the body, we're not accepted by God, ultimately. And, and we're performing to please each other. And we're told by each other that it's godliness. You see, if you imagine, if you will, I've, I've done this before uh, in this teaching. If you imagine a big circle and inside that big circle are some big, huge black dots those are unchangeable undeniable truths of the gospel jesus was born of a virgin unchangeable undeniable truth if you don't agree with that in the beginning was god before all existence was god and he created all that is that's an undeniable truth of the gospel you cannot come to the gospel and its reality without believing that god pre-existed creation and pre-existed time and is not limited by time. You cannot accept Jesus as your personal savior and deny the fact that God is the creator. Undeniable truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. We must resurrect our 
our understanding that we must hold Jesus front and center. After 9-11, you cannot really talk about just God this, God that, because there are people in the body of Christ who think that the God of Allah, the God of Muhammad, or Allah himself, is the equivalent of God we serve, that somehow they're the same thing, and ultimately we all wind up in the same place. Honey, coexistence is one of the most idiotic philosophies on the face of the earth. Every single one of those things is not allowed to coexist with Islam. Islam wants to kill it off. And so you can't coexist with people who want to behead you. I think Islam hates us. It's simply that true. Our God is the one true living God of heaven and earth, and the only way to him is through his son, Jesus Christ. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That's a huge black dot. Okay. So inside those black dots, I'm looking at the people around me going, boy, I, I hope that God bursts faith in your heart enough to receive these truths. I hope that you will, you will experience God in such a real way that you won't doubt these truths. My desire for you is that you know the love of God. My desire for you is that you are adopted as a son into the kingdom of God. Truly it is. Now, outside those big black dots, for me, for you, are some gray dots, some smaller gray dots. They, they don't have near the importance of the black dots, but they're there in our life. And those dots are our convictions, our personal convictions. You should have personal convictions. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you read your Bible, if you worship, if you pray, then, then the Bible says, my sheep hear my voice. And part of the process of God working in our lives is that he works with us personally. My journey is different than your journey. To your journey! To my journey! What he wants me to do in my faith walk is different than what he wants you to do in your faith walk. And so he speaks to us. My sheep hear my voice. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through teaching. He speaks to us directly, but we hear the voice of God. One, one of the most exciting things to me as a pastor, one of the most exciting things to me ever is when I'm teaching something and somebody comes up to me and says, God spoke to me about this while you were teaching. And you know, many times it doesn't have a lot to do with what I was actually saying. It's indeed complete, something completely different. But God spoke to them. God showed them something about their own life while I was teaching. That's exciting to me because my job, as I see it, is to set the stage for the Holy Spirit to work in people's lives. And so when the Holy Spirit speaks to somebody and gives them a direction, when God gives them a direction, then their belief system is altered it's changed, and many times they establish a new conviction. In my life, it's not right for me to do X, Y, Z. In my life, I should be doing X, Y, Z. Uh, and those convictions are important. 
They're, they're highly important. It's part of the process. It's part of being a real son is that you have some convictions in your life. 